0: As we have started into equip, our statement, one of our vision statements for this um, and our purpose found in the book of Ephesians tells us, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we are until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, we believe that our relationship with Christ is a lifelong journey of growth. No one graduates or ages out of this walk with God. There is something that I just absolutely love about hearing Members of our church, believers who have served God for decades of their lives, talking about learning something new in their walk with God. I think that is so powerful, and I find it very exciting to think that God can actively speak to us and continue to reveal more and more of himself to us day after day and just year after year in our lives. It's our desire that Equip will have something to offer for believers who are in all places in their walks with God. So part of that is through Starting Point that we've been going through on Sunday mornings. And then those classes are going to continue all throughout our year. And then here at Equip, this is part of our vision for this as well. And in the months ahead, you're gonna hear more and more about other offers and opportunities that you have to dig in and learn more about God's word and grow in your faith. So as we began Equip in January, we thought, A good place to start was with the basics and what we believe as a church. The last few weeks, you've heard us talk about the Bible being the inspired word of God. You've heard us share about the importance of serving the one true God and knowing the one true God. And then last week, if you were here, you heard just a very encouraging and uplifting message about the deity of Christ and all that he means to us. I hope that you've enjoyed digging in deeper to God's word. I know I have enjoyed these weeks. And it's exciting to work together with all of you to become a more mature follower of Christ. Tonight, we're going to learn about a subject matter that's a bit more serious in topic, um, the fall of man and the introduction of sin into our world. And I know that God has a plan and a desire to teach us something through this word that we're going to hear tonight. So I want to ask you to help me and welcome our teacher for this evening, which is Dan Tryock.
1: Thank you jenny so here's the deal last week ryan mobley yeah there you are rascal ryan mobley got to teach got to teach about the deity of christ the deity of the lord jesus christ what a beautiful topic and you did a great job ryan next week john harper gets to teach about the salvation of man how exciting that is i mean it's just amazing and in the middle Dan gets to talk about the fall of man. <laughs> so we're going to jump into this feel-good lesson tonight. Um, no, seriously, this is something that we really need to understand. If we're, going to, if we're going to proclaim the gospel to people, and we're going to tell people, you need Christ, you need Christ in your life, you need to be redeemed, you need to be saved, and they say why, how do we answer that question? You know, we do live in a world that morality is relative, right? And right and wrong seems to be relative. And, and 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 people question the need for a Savior. But believe me, we need a Savior. And God provided such an awesome one. And John gets to tell you about that next week. Um, so, tonight I want to talk about what we believe regarding the fall of man. Specifically, here's, here's the succinct statement. And then I'm going to talk for the next half hour on this succinct statement. It says... Man was created good and upright, for God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. However, man by voluntary transgression fell and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also spiritual death, which is separation from God. So before I expound on that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to hear truth tonight, Lord. We don't want to hear my opinion, we want to hear truth. And we want to understand, Lord, why we believe the things that we believe. Tonight, Lord, I, I just pray that the words I've prepared, Father, would, would be a, a, anointed, and God, that our ears and our hearts would receive it, and our minds, our intellect, would understand it, Lord, so that we know how to answer, Lord, when asked about the things that we believe in. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start um, with attempting to answer the question, what are we as human beings? I mean, philosophers have talked about that for decades, right? Well, um, to address the origin of humankind, I'd like to read a passage from the book of Psalms that speaks to this. It's from Psalm the 8th chapter, starting at the third verse. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars of which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. The first thing I want to tell you this, morning, or this evening um, is, it's, it's morning someplace, right? It's someplace. Is humankind is unique. We are unique out of all of God's creation. The perspective of the psalmist in Psalm 8 with regard to human beings is a perspective from above, that is, from a relationship to heaven. Now, this is in sharp contrast to all the rest of God's creation. Humans are made, the psalm says, a little lower than the angels, yet God crowned us with glory and with honor. God created humankind also... To rule over his creation. He placed us in that position to rule over his creation. That does not mean to exploit his creation. That does not mean to destroy and take advantage of his creation, but to tend it. Um, In Genesis, the second chapter, the seventh verse, it says this. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. See, Genesis, if you read before that, the creation story, it says that that basically God spoke all of creation into existence by his word, out of nothingness. God spoke all the rest of creation into existence. However... Mankind was different from the rest of his creation. Um, He fashioned man from the earth, first of all, and then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think Think about that, think about that. The very breath of God gave life to the very first humans, and you don't see that with regard to any other of God's creations. God breathed his breath into us and gave the first man life. And that has been passed on to the rest of us. Let's talk about the nature, then, of humankind. That's the origin of humankind. Let's talk about the nature of humankind. Humans consist of both material and immaterial parts. Okay? Um, The Bible speaks of humans as having material and immaterial parts. And in some passages, it describes two separate immaterial parts. Those who adhere to the belief that humans have these three parts, body, soul, and spirit, are called trichotomous. They believe in the trichotomy of the human existence. Um, and a justification for this belief we, we can find in 1 Thessalonians. If you look in the 5th chapter of the 23rd verse, it says, "...may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." So we see Paul referencing these three aspects, these three parts of our human nature. Let's look at these three parts. First is the material part, the material aspect, and that is our body. That's this thing you can feel and, and you can sense. Um, this is our world conscious aspect. This is how we, uh, we um, connect with the world around us. Our senses, our senses that we have, um, give us an awareness of our surroundings, all our senses, and our senses also then help us to communicate with that which is around us. The other, another aspect of our body is our bodily appetites, and they are made up of both physiological and psychological makeup. They, 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 make up our, our physiological and psychological makeup. Now, I want you to understand something about how the Bible talks about these bodily Um, appetites. The body does not, or the the Bible does not talk about these as being inherently evil. That is evil in themselves. And that's kind of significant because if you go back to the time of Christ, to Greek culture and and other pagan cultures in in that area in the world, um, they looked at the body as being evil. They did. And in fact, the Greeks referred to it as a prison house. Um, the bible doesn 't doesn 't talk about the human body in those terms. The Bible talks about the body as being good. God created the body good. therefore, what we need to do is exercise discipline over these bodily um, appetites because I think we all know that pick pick the easiest appetite right eating right how if we don 't exercise discipline over that, that can become evil can 't it but i 'm telling you that in themselves intrinsically they are not evil. God created our bodies good. Um, remember, the bo- our bodies are to be the habitation of the Holy Spirit. How then could that which is bad be the habitation of the Holy Spirit? Our bodies are intended to do that. Our bodies will someday be resurrected, and when they're resurrected, our bodies will be incorruptible, and they will be glorified. Wow, what an awesome promise that is. Paul, in the book of Philippians, um, said that Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I'm ready. (laughs) Sign up for that. I'm ready for that. He also told the Corinthians, Um, This is in first Corinthians. He said for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality For when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality Then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory So these bodies we're not we're not going to get rid of having a body someday We're going to have bodies for eternity. The thing is that these corruptible bodies will become incorruptible. Perishable bodies will become imperishable. And, and the lowly bodies will become glorious. What an awesome promise. See, we're going to uh, need our glorified bodies because we will always be, as we were created, finite beings. We're not going to transcend into some other um, realm of being where we we'll become spirits like, like God is. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are always going to be um, finite beings. So, that's the material body. That's the material part of of the human existence. Now, there are two immaterial um, facets of the human existence. And those are the soul and the spirit, which are intimately linked and virtually inseparable. Now, I want to point out, and and I don't want to get too deep into something, but just as an aside, there are people that prefer to just refer to the body as... Or the human human existence as two parts: the body, material, and soul, spirit, immaterial. And there's there's some um, there's some reason for that. If you go to Second Corinthians, the fourth and fifth chapter, and and Paul talks a lot in those chapters about the material body and the body that will live on, that's immaterial. And those are called dichotomists because they believe in the dichotomy of the human existence. Um, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm not sure that I care to split hairs because even if they are the same, there, there are two functions. I want to talk about those two functions. The next thing is the soul. The soul is immaterial, and the soul is basically our self. What makes up us? Um, particularly with respect to conscious life here and now, the faculties of our soul include our intellect, our emotions, And the will, the human will. Now, those are immaterial things. And together, these compose what we would refer to as the real person. This is the essence of who we are, not the physical body. This physical body can change, right? I can lose a limb. I could lose several limbs. I could lose physical abilities. But my essence, my soul is immaterial, and it's not not impacted by that. Um, these, these, um, these faculties give internal awareness of selfhood, right? You become internally aware of who you are, and they provide and govern the total personality. Now, the other piece, besides the soul, that we were created with is our spirit. first thing I want to point out when talking about this is that God is spirit, that is God's totality. God is spirit. In John, the fourth chapter, we, a lot of us are familiar with this story. This is when Jesus is speaking with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he's talking about worship, and he's talking about what true worship is. And he makes this statement. Jesus says is He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. That is God. God is not a finite being. God does not have a body. God is spirit. On the other hand, humans are not spirit. Human spirit is within each of us. In First Corinthians, the second chapter, says, For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? See, so that's a key difference between us and God. Our spirit lives within our finite body. Our spirit is that aspect of our being that bears relationship to the unseen spiritual world. And that's true whether evil or good. I mean, I think we all know there are, there's an evil spiritual world at well in this world. And our spirit that's inside us can bear witness to that as well. But um, the the point is, um, that capability, that is our capability that can make us God conscious. is that spirit that lives within us. Let me read you a scripture out of Ephesians. This is the second chapter, verses 1 through 4. I'm sorry, 1 through 5. even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. See, unregenerated people who have not allowed Christ to change them and the Spirit of God to change them um, are dead with respect to God. Their spirits are inert. They are dead with respect to God. They're spiritually inert. But when the Holy Spirit quickens us, The Holy Spirit quickens us. He brings new life to our spirits, restoring our ability. And this is important. Restoring our ability to relate to God. Basically, he brings our spirits back to life. That's what the regenerated man has. is a spirit that's been brought back to life. Perhaps the most amazing aspect of humans is... That, that, that shows their uniqueness among all of God's creation is the fact that humans were created in the image and the likeness of God. And friends, if nothing else sets us, sets, us, sets us apart from the rest of creation, the fact that we were created in God's image and his likeness does. This is what it says in Genesis. This is the first chapter. Twenty-sixth verse it says then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them now do we look like god no we don't look like god um, you don't look like God. I don't look like God. What did I just say? God is spirit, right? God doesn't even have a body. Um, so when it talks about, um, when it says uses the word, Scripture uses the word image, what it's implying is that there is something like God about us. There is something like God about us. It doesn't mean we look like him because God doesn't, doesn't even have a physical body. And likeness implies that we resemble him. We do resemble him um, because in some ways humans are like God. We are. But we will never, never be totally like him because we will always, folks, we will always be finite beings. As I pointed out earlier, even in heaven, in, in the new heaven, the new earth, we're just going to have a different body, right? We will never be anything but finite beings, and that's okay. That's how God created it, created us. Um, We are not little gods. Yeah? I mean, we're in God's image, but we're not little gods. We're not. What the the scripture just, that we read in Romans 8 just a while ago say, it said that we were created a little lower than the angels. Right? So you got God, you got the angels, and we're a little lower right here, but still above all of his creation. Being created in the image of God, in Latin that's imago Dei, if you've heard that term before, refers to both a natural and a moral image. Those are two things I want to talk about, our nature and then a moral image. That's what it's talking about, not a physical image. The first one is the natural image, and the natural image endows us with a set of characteristics or a nature that is not found in the animals because God didn't endow them with that, with that nature. These include intellect, intellect, sensibility, and our will, we have those because we are endowed with them from the creators in his image. It also includes the potential for what we call culture and civilization. We possess those things because we're in the image of God. We were created in his image. The sphere of freedom in which we exercise our powers of self-determination our choice, the ability to exercise choice is because we are endowed with them being created in God's image as part of our nature. And because we are created in God's image, we are capable of and responsible for love. Now, I know you think your dog loves you, your puppy loves you, and you know, there are attractions that are seen in the animal world, and, but, but it's not the type of agape love that God talks about. We are created in his image, and only humans are capable of that type of love. Now, aside from the natural image, that which affects our nature, there's also the moral image. We were created in the moral image of God. And what I mean by that is this relates to the rightness and wrongness of the use of our powers. We can do good. We can do evil. We can make right choices. We can make wrong choices. We can do right things. We can do wrong things. Humans possess, and this is different from all God's creations, Humans possess the potential to choose between great evil and true goodness. And we observe that in the history of humankind. We observe that, honestly, when we look in the mirror, right? We have that potential because we have the moral image of God. Adam and Eve were created sinless. They had genuine holiness of heart, not just mere innocence. Yeah, they were innocent, But they had holiness of heart. Why? Because they were created in God's image. They had a strong inclination toward God, and they wanted to talk with him and walk with him in the garden. They had this attraction, this inclination to God and to holiness because they were created in his image. In fact, this is what it says in Ecclesiastes, the seventh chapter, the 29th verse. It says, this only have I found, God created man upright. That's how he created us. We were holy when we were created And you know what? God wants to restore that. He wants to restore that moral image within us. He still does. Well, God also had a purpose for mankind. God didn't create us just on a whim and, I don't know, bored and something to do. God had a purpose. He created mankind, humankind, for a grand divine purpose. And I want to consider just three aspects of that this evening. Just, Just three aspects of what that purpose was. Um, first, that we would have a close, intimate relationship with him. In Genesis 3, you know, it talks about God coming to the garden to walk, to walk with Adam and Eve, to be physically with them, to be present. His spirit would be present with them. What a wonderful thing. That's what God desired. That was the environment that God first created. And when we look ahead to the future, we look at Revelation, the third chapter, twenty the verse, and it says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And this is, a, this is an amazing promise that I love. And also from Revelation, the 21st chapter, in the third verse, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people and He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he and, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. That was the first purpose that God had for us: is, is to have this intimate relationship and to dwell with us and, and live with us. The second, the second thing that I, I believe uh, addresses God's purpose is God wanted us to accept. The, God wanted us to accept the responsibility of working for Him. Now I know when we hear the word work. We think, oh man, I, that's that's not a good thing, right? God's concept of work, at least His concept of work from the garden, from before the fall, is a lot a lot different than what we think of, right? I mean, when we think of work, we think, well, that's a four-letter word, right? It's got to be bad, yeah. And we, we you know we, we count the days till our retirement, and 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 Friday is a holiday. Why is Friday a holiday? Because it's the end of the work week, and but but work work. The way God envisioned it was a good thing. It was a holy thing. It was a righteous thing. In Genesis, the second chapter, in the 15th verse, it says, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And I got to tell you, when he did that, Adam did not think this is a drudgery. This is a bad thing. He was given the responsibility to take care of his garden. God did not bestow that responsibility on any other of his creation. Just man. It's unique to man. Um, in fact, in Genesis 1.18, he instructs humans to exert authority and dominion over all the earth. Kind of, kind of ties into what we read in, in Psalm 8 a, a little, little while ago. We should have authority and dominion over the rest of God's creation. In Revelation, we, we, we see a glimpse of what he has in store for us. Revelation the 20th chapter the sixth verse says blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection the second death has no power over them But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years We're gonna rule with Christ. We're gonna have stuff to do again We're gonna be reigning and ruling with Christ through the millennium period and you know, I I gotta think Knowing the nature of our God that he's probably got stuff planned for us Beyond that don't you think all the way into eternity? And that leads me to the third part of God's purpose. Um, the third one is that humans would live with him eternally. God intended that from the start. that humans would live with him eternally. In the Genesis account, um, you know initially, it, it talks about two trees being in the center of the garden, didn't it? A tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was the other one? A tree of life. Man was forbidden to eat from only one of those. Man was only forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it wasn't until after the fall that God said, "Oh, he's man's become like us. They know the difference between good and evil. We've got to put. A, I'm going to put a guard over the tree of life, lest they eat of it and live eternally." God didn't want man to live in a fallen state eternally, but he had intended. God he intended man. He intended man initially to live eternity, eternally. In John 3, 16, what's to say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's intent. God wants to dwell with us forever and ever. So what happened? Let's talk about the origin of sin then. Um, I, I don't want to talk about tonight about the origin of evil, because that's, you know, we, we don't have time for that. and It's a little out of the scope of tonight's topic. Um, but what I do want to do is jump right to what went wrong with this picture. You know, we see how God created it, us and how unique He made us, and He made us in His image, and He made us, and He had these purposes for us. But, but something went terribly wrong. Something went terribly wrong that we're still reaping the uh, consequences of. The first human sin is recorded in Genesis, the third chapter, first verse. Let's start. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So, Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, do, don't even touch it. If you touch it, you're going to die. The serpent who we know to be the devil. Um, In Revelation 12, 9, it actually explains that in Revelation 12, 9, that the serpent is the devil. The serpent tempted Eve, said two things. First, contradicted God. You're not going to die. You are certainly not going to die. That was his first lie. And then he said, you will be like God. And that was a partial truth, That was a partial truth because God even said that when he set the the cherubim with the sword to, to guard the tree of life. He said that they're now like us. They know the difference between right and wrong. Eve responded because the scripture says there were three reasons she responded and she ate the fruit. One, the fruit was good for food. Now that means it looked appetizing, I think. There are a lot of things that are good for food. You know, I guess different types of worms are good for food. But you wouldn't look at it and say, i got to have some of that. I gave me some of that, right? So it looked good. It looked appetizing. The other, set, other thing is said that the fruit just looked good. It was appealing to the eye. It was appealing to the eye. So I, I don't know what it was. We, you know, we, we always symbolize it with an apple. I have no idea what it was. And the third thing that, that it says is that she realized that it was good for gaining wisdom. And because of those things... We know the story. She took of it. She gave to Adam. Adam took of it. And and sin then entered into the world. See, the biblical concept of sin, there are a lot of different concepts of sin that that I don't want to go into, but the biblical concept of sin is that it originated in an abuse of the freedom that was given to a being, us humans, who are created with a will. Sin is not a thing that was created. God created all things, right? And everything God created was good. Sin is not good, so sin is not a created thing. Sin is a matter of relationship, is what it is. Basically, it disregards the glory of God, the will of God, and the Word of God. And sin is an act of free choice. It's an act of free choice. Oh, God, I couldn't couldn't stop myself, couldn't help myself. Sin is an act of free choice. Let's be very clear. That's what it is. No excuses. God allowed for true moral freedom in the angels and in human beings. He created them like that. He, he allowed for moral freedom. And, and I imagine that that moral freedom is inherent characteristic of the, of the image of God that we were endowed with, this image of God. Moral freedom is part of that. He thus allowed, think of this, for the possibility of failure. Hmm, It's a terrible risk. It's a horrible risk. And, of course, that's what happened, right? There was failure. That's what happened. Um, Yet, without that possibility, there could not be genuine freedom or true personality. Because true freedom comes with a choice. No choice, there's no true freedom. And that's not how God created us in his image. So what exactly is sin? Um, we need a definition, right? We need definitions. Don't just tell me what the characteristics of sin are. Give me a definition. Well, um, many of the words, that, there are multiple words in the Bible that are used for sin, translated as sin, and they simply, mean, they simply mean to miss the mark. To miss the mark either by doing something that you know you shouldn't do or avoiding something that you should do and you don't do it missing the mark. So there are several words that, that literally mean that, that are translated sin. Um, there are also words that are used for sin in, in, in the Bible that, that, that speak of rebellion and speak of disobedience. You know, I, I don't think it's hard for us to really know what sin is. It's like, you know, the the five-year-old kid that knows what pornography is, right? He doesn't know the definition, but he knows it when he sees it, right? Um, it's the same thing, I think, with sin. But uh, uh, Another definition comes directly from 1 John 3, 4, and that is the definition of lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who breaks, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And that word, that Greek word means, it can mean without the law, um, it can mean in violation of the law, it can mean having contempt for the law. Essentially, sin is transgressing God's law. That's the negative definition of sin. What are the consequences? We're still bearing the consequences of sin. Um, First, there were personal consequences. There were personal consequences to Adam and Eve, right? The first was spiritual death. They didn't physically die when they touched the tree. They didn't physically die when they ate the fruit, did they? But they experienced a physical death. I'm sorry, spiritual. They experienced a spiritual death. And that was what God talked about. That spiritual death played itself out in alienation from God. Oftentimes in the Bible, sin, sin refers to a separate being separated. Or death, I'm sorry. Death talks about separation. And in this case, it alienated Adam and Eve from God and, and all of mankind. That was a death that came upon them. And it introduced a state of guilt. There was no guilt in the garden before sin. But what happened when when God came to walk with them and and to be with them? What did they do? They ran and hid. They were ashamed. They were were embarrassed. That was a feeling of guilt. And let me tell you, it was more than just a feeling of, of guilt. It was an actual state of guilt. A lot of times we have feelings of guilt, don't we, when we're maybe not really guilty? I mean, sometimes we have feelings of guilt over very silly things, you know. But this wasn't just a feeling. They actually entered a state of guilt. They were truly guilty. And in an immediate consequence, um, God introduced struggles and pain into his creation, or sin actually created struggles and pain. And even nature, even nature itself suffered. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3, and this was after God came and they admitted to what they had done. Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19 says, To the woman, he said, I will make your your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Even nature itself was corrupted by sin, and how Adam would spend the rest of his life and all mankind toiling for for just food, for existence. Um, the, the days of the garden where there were all these beautiful trees that it says were beautiful to look at, and beautiful for food, and you could just eat of it and, and have sustenance for it. Those days were gone. And besides the consequences that were personal for Adam and Eve, there were consequences for the entire human race. The first one is we are born now. We are born with a sin nature That leads us to sin. We're born that way. There's no escaping this for it is in our nature. We are born slaves to sin because of Adam and Eve's sin. Um, In Romans 3.23, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do. Every one of us. And why do we sin? Because we are slaves to sin. We have all inherited that sin nature. Um, and because of that, we inherit all the consequences that Adam and Eve inherited. The ones that I just mentioned, those personal consequences, they now fall on all of mankind. We all suffer from those. And the other, th- uh, the other consequence that we have as the human race is that we are born now spiritually dead we are born that way. Adam and Eve weren't created spiritually dead, were they? They were created holy. They were created holy before God and their spirits were alive. Now we as humans are born from the womb spiritually dead. Um, remember the passage that we read in Ephesians 2 um, a little while ago. talks about how we are dead in trans- trans- our trespasses and sins. So, that's the state in which we find ourselves tonight. Isn't this fun? <laughs> like I said, this is a real feel-good lesson tonight. But we have to understand this because next week, John Harper is going to bring us some good news. See, God, God's purposes for us have not changed. The purposes f- that, that he wanted to have intimate relationship with us that he wanted us to be about his work and that he wanted to live with us eternally or us to live with him eternally, those, those purposes haven't changed. And God anticipated with the possibility of failure, if he created beings that had his moral image that could choose between right and wrong and they chose wrong, he anticipated that there would need to be a solution. And that solution is found in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, And next week, you're going to hear about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, Pastor Paul is going to come up. I think we have some things to pray about this evening. Father, I I thank you that we were able to look in your Scripture tonight and, and, and learn what it has to say about our fall, the fall of humankind, the state that we now find ourselves in. And God, as depressing as that might be, we rejoice tonight because we know that you... You did not leave us in that state. Lord, you made a plan. You made a way for us. God, you had an amazing act of redemption to lift us out of that fallen state. And next week, I pray, Lord, that we could really understand that, that you would cement that into our hearts, into our minds, into our spirits, Lord. We want to be able to clearly articulate, Lord, what it is that we believe, why we think we need a Redeemer, and that what great work it is that you have done. So, Lord, I pray that, that, that these words that we've talked about tonight, although they're not really uplifting and encouraging, Lord, I pray that they would lay a foundation for next week's lesson about your great redemption and the salvation of man. And we thank you for that, Lord. And Jesus Jesus name. Amen. Praise the Lord.